Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place where management faculty and PhD students share about their journeys and stories in academia. Before we start with our next episode, I want to give a, a huge thanks to our sponsor for this episode, EGADE and Tecnológico de Monterrey. They supported a lot of the NDSC objectives this year, right? And, and, and provided with, with help and support, right? So thank, thank you a lot to EGADE and Tecnológico Monterrey. I'm going to share a link to their website, right? They're a school in, in Monterrey, but they're also all over Mexico. And they do work globally, especially in, in Latin America, right? So they're kind of like one of the leaders in education in Latin America, one of the top business schools in the region for sure. And we really appreciate having them as our partners and one of our sponsors this year. Thank you very much to EGADE and Tecnológico de Monterrey. Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to these special sessions. We're recording here live at AOM in Boston. So now this time I have Michaela with me, also team, and team member of the NDSE committee. Uh, and with us, our guest, uh, Jeff Gish from University of Central Florida. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So something that I like to start always with is kind of like a little icebreaker instead of going directly into asking you about your career, academics, research, uh, let's know more about you as a person, right? What's maybe a passion of you, a hobby, something that you do outside of the university or anything that has to do with academics? <laughs> outside of anything that has to do with academics? Yes, outside of it. Yeah. Um, well, I do work a lot. Um, But I, I also have a family. I have a wife and three kids, and I like spending time with them. And uh, so I spend a lot of time with my family. We like to go, like we live in Florida. We're pretty close to the beach. We go to the beach. Um, I ride mountain bikes with my son. And there's some, there aren't many mountains in Florida, but there are places to ride mountain bikes. And so we found those. And it's one of the main ways that I get exercise now is getting out and pedaling on a bike. And it's also good because I have some projects on spending time in nature and how that's good for mental well-being. And uh, it makes me a better husband, a better father, I think, and also a better worker. Nice, awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that there's a lot of mountain biking in, in Florida, but you somehow found the way to do it. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. You just have to pedal for all your speed. There's no downhill riding. Yeah. Perfect. So um, the first question, and then I'll, I'll let Michaela uh, take the mic. Uh, tell us a little bit of how you got into this career, uh, and then also maybe a little bit of your process on which program, right, and kind of like that path and decision, and maybe what why you focused on entrepreneurship stuff and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, okay, so it's a, it's a little bit of a long story mine because I didn't take a clean path directly from undergrad or a master's program to a PhD. I actually started out as a high school teacher and I taught social science, so civics, economics, um, history, and I enjoyed that. I was going to be a basketball coach and teach social studies, and I did that for a few years, but we, my wife and I had a kid and it kind of just changed our whole life path and so I went back to school and got a master's degree and I was looking at the job market at the end of that program and I didn't want to leave where we lived at the time and I was going to have to leave to a bigger market to get a job with this MBA and so I decided I would investigate starting my own business and I did I had a business from 
well, for seven years from 2006 to 2013. And uh, when I sold that business to a larger competitor, I was thinking about what's next? What's my next step? And I was confused about how I could treat a couple different employees totally the same. And one would be a very loyal employee and a great worker and the other would steal from me for example <laughs> this happened and I wanted to kind of find out why is it that people react so differently to management styles or company culture and I started reading some papers and in, uh, in our in some of our academic journals that I that everyone knows and loves now but maybe didn't know so much before you joined a PhD program and uh, I found out that you can actually do this research and uh, that can be a career. I had no idea. Um, but I, I met up with some people from my master's program and asked them some questions about how they ended up getting their positions and getting their PhDs. We started talking some more about my research interests and now I do work on individual level entrepreneurship and how entrepreneurs make decisions and sometimes new venture employees. Uh, so I've stayed pretty true to my initial interest in research, uh, but of course you meet new people and you start thinking about new ideas and they've branched in many different directions and, and I've met a lot of interesting people in the academy. So that's how I got into it and I started applying to programs and I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> uh, when I was applying to PhD programs, you know, I was just thinking, oh, well, I have a master's degree, do I have to take coursework? Yeah, you have to take coursework, it's very different uh, <laughs> than a master's program. And I learned a lot about writing, had a great advisor, Dave Wagner at University of Oregon, and he was a good, he's also a good mentor. We still we stay in touch to this day. And uh, they had an entrepreneurship program there, and I thought I'd apply at Oregon, and the rest is history. And now I, my rookie placement out of my PhD program was University of Central Florida in Orlando, which took me out of the Northwest, but my family that still lives in the Northwest will come visit us in Orlando to come see the theme parks or the beach. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Well, that's actually really interesting. But uh, like, what what do you find to be like the most fulfilling thing about being an academic? Fulfilling. Well, one thing just sort of off the cuff that I enjoy about being an academic is, and, and compared to my my small business career, I had. 57 employees and 42 trucks driving across the country and with that many things going on it's very likely that each day there's going to be some type of emergency and it's probably not going to be during working hours <laughs> or many times it's not during working hours and so what I like about being a professor now a junior faculty member at UCF is that there really aren't any emergencies the research cycle is lumpy you know you might have a really busy cycle and you have to really buckle down and work long hours and I'm fine with that um, but th if I don't write this paragraph today it can obviously get written tomorrow and uh, there are times where I just need a break and and that's possible there's a lot of autonomy with a career um, as a professor and so that's one of the things that I really do appreciate In contrast to that, like, what would you say is the most challenging thing about the position that you have now? Challenging. Oh, have you submitted a paper before and received <laughs> reviewer feedback? Because that's challenging. And I s started doing that in grad school. Had no idea. I, like, we can grow our, our research pipeline as we become better researchers, right? And so I have more things going on now. And I, and I teach more classes than I did when I was a graduate student. And somehow you just adjust to that, but the rejection never gets fun. Um, 
and, and I've had some success publishing, but I've also had a lot of rejections. And, um, you know, you also get better research as you go through this career, and hopefully that means that you get fewer rejections. And it, the process can feel a little bit random uh, as far as, like, which reviewers you get or, you know, which reviewers did were available at the time for the editor that's handling your paper. And that's a, that's a frustration. I don't think that's a unique frustration to me. I think if you asked 100 research active faculty that question that, that would be at least on their list of frustrations that they have um, but I also review for journals and that helps me see what other pe other reviewers are seeing about papers when I look at the overall feedback and what the editor decided to use to make his or her decision and that's that's valuable feedback for me so not just to see if I was off kilter with my review but also to become a better researcher myself so I would say the review process is the most infuriating process it's also rewarding because there are some times where the review, review process makes papers better and and I found that if you have good editorial leadership on this paper like who is thinking about things that you haven't thought of before with the reviewers and sees a future for the paper that can be a really generative process and even though it's a lot of work and it's multiple rounds um, it's it's a better product at the end and that's something that I'm thankful for so it's a the review process is a blessing <laughs> but mostly a curse for me when I get rejected. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, man. Yeah. I haven't gotten to experience that yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that when it comes. Getting um, rejected? <laughs> no, not getting rejected, but <laughs> the just blessing the, part. The, the good part of it. The generative part of it. Um, all right. So what would you say is, like, the best advice you, you've received so far? Yeah. Um, best advice. Well, it probably happens right after a rejection when I'm, you know, a mentor or a friend is talking me back from the ledge of a building that I want to jump off of or a cliff that I might be peering over and questioning my life decisions, figuratively, of course. Um, and when they give me advice, they, they try and conceptualize or, I guess, get me to see things in a more positive light. I mean, when you do get, when you do get feedback from a journal... It can still make the paper better, even if it's with a rejection. And so once I take the, what I would call affective tone away from the feedback, so mm -hmm. the thoughts and feelings that are the feelings and moods that, I, that are developed from, um, from that adverse feedback or critical feedback, and I can separate my emotions from the stuff that really is a valid critique, then I can actually make the paper better. And that usually takes time. Um, it takes... It, it takes advice, um, and I think that was that's good advice that I received from other people who are research active, and people who are much more accomplished than I am. And so, just seeing, hearing from them, commiserating with them that, yeah, uh, I get rejected too, because you see these polished papers and you think, this is how these are written first draft. Because that was my experience with writing, leading up to a PhD program. I, I maybe wrote a rough draft, got some feedback on that, wrote a final draft, turned it in get a grade usually a good grade and then I'm done with that piece of writing but that's not the type of writing that we do with a PhD um, in a research career if you're going to continue writing is an iterative process and it takes more iterations than I ever imagined I mean I've written introductions just trying to you're essentially selling the paper in the introduction right and I've written introductions 20 times before ever submitting a paper and that can be infuriating but it it's also how papers begin to look so polished when they are when they are published. I think I want to like take a little bit of time to kind of like highlight that you said because I think like when you're a, 
a PhD student or looking into going to a PhD student, you start reading papers, right? Something that you're not used to unless you're kind of like in this world. You see these papers, right? These AMJs, and like, oh my God, how can I? But as you said, right? These go through a lot of process. First, with the authors, right? And there's a like drafts and drafts and revisions. Then you get a friendly review, or your advisor revises it, and then you got that. Then you submit it to a journal, and there's there are revision process there. So mm -hmm. the the final product is just a lot of lot of revisions and polishing and a lot of work, right? It's not like oh, you see it one day, you write it, and that's it, right? So and I think, I mean, maybe it was only me, but you read those papers and you're expecting that this is what I need to submit, right? And no, that, that is the end submission after a long, long time of work. So I think that's a, a great idea to highlight, I know, for anybody that's like an early PhD, I think it's important to understand that what we see out there is, it's like when you're watching a movie, right? You're, there was a lot of editing behind it uh, to what you watch in the movie theater, right? So and I think a lot of takes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, um, another question that we like to ask is, Maybe what's a resource, right, that uh, during your PhD or now in your, your career as an academic has been super helpful and you think it can be helpful for others? Yeah, I'll, I will answer that question in a moment, but I want to go back to your yeah. thought that the papers look so polished and maybe I actually had a different view. When I, uh, when I started talking to people from my MBA program who were professors, uh, they handed me some AMJs to read mm -hmm. and I read them and I'm like, well, I think I can do that. <laughs> and so I was overly optimistic. Um, a good trait of an entrepreneur. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. Um, or or it, it can be a damning trait too. But yeah. uh, it, you do have to be an eternal optimist to continue submitting papers, uh, <laughs> especially after a string of rejections. But I think I might have been overly optimistic. But, I, you know, of course, you learn, right? Mm -hmm. We We... The more we learn, the less we feel like we know, and that's very true for me too. So once I got into the process and started writing and revising, um, and it's very hard for me to revise my own writing. I don't know if you guys struggle with that, but that's something that I struggle with immensely because I feel like, well, I've already said it. Can somebody else? <laughs> can somebody else give me suggestions on how to fix it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I become I become better at that through just working at it, and it's it's hard for me. I don't think I'm a natural writer that can just sit down and make prose. Um, I, I really think deeply about things before I write them, and it's hard for me to update that thinking when it's my own words on the page. And so that's something that I've struggled with, but gotten better with experience. Awesome. And then you asked me about um, you asked me about a resource that has helped me, and and I when I think about resources or or research that's been put out there on the process of writing and perhaps how there's randomness in the review process because I don't think anybody would argue that the review process is perfect, but it's the best way to achieve a, uh, a peer-reviewed and edited piece of work at the end of that process. And so, first of all, you don't want to just feel defeated because you've been rejected. You want to try and you know give it some time, separate yourself from the emotions and that, that it elicited when you first read it. Um, but there's a research, or there's a there's a paper out there that was my favorite paper to read in graduate school, and the the paper, if if you want to look it up, I highly recommend it. I talked to my wife right after I read it, and I said, why can't all papers in management be like this? It's a it's about the work that we do, and and uh, the the paper reference is Hollenbeck and Manor. It's 2007. It's published in the Journal of Organizational Behavior, and it talks about how the the revision pro or sorry the the research submission and peer review process can be random. However, if you control the things that you can, 
then you can have success as a researcher. Your, which is called your true score, your ability as a researcher will be revealed. And so they go through, it's a, I believe they do a simulation, uh, and they also look at the careers of people who uh, have tried to submit papers. And, I mean, if you want to get in, get into the weeds to find out how likely it is that your true score comes out, I highly recommend the paper. But it's also enlightening because it talks about what you can control. So those two things that it talks about you can control are your activity level, how much you continue writing, and your level of resilience. How much do you keep going when mm -hmm. a paper is rejected? So do you submit it to one journal and it gets rejected and you quit that paper? That would be a low resilience score. But if you submit to several different journals, two or three, that's a little bit higher. And then even more than that, it's, it's even more resilient. So that's how they measure resilience. Activity level is just, you know, how much time do you spend writing? And of course, as you're, a, this is for doctoral students. And so as you're learning to write, your researcher true score, your ability to be a researcher is improving. But that's just a result of the work that you're doing in, in your training. The two things that you can control that whole time is how resilient you are to critical feedback and how much activity you do. And that's, that's terribly freeing to me because I can control those things. I don't get to control who the chief editor gives my paper to to handle. I don't get to control who the associate editor is and which reviewers they send it to. And I will never know who those people are if the, if the blind review process works. And so I don't get to control that, but I can control what I write, how I react to the comments and I can keep my activity level up and stay resilient and so that was just you know I it's a paper that makes me smile every time I read it and I love recommending it to doctoral students because um, because of the effect that it had on me that's awesome what I'll do is uh, at the link at the bottom of the link I'll, I'll add the sorry uh, of this podcast I'll add the link to that paper because I think okay. that's that's awesome I'll read it too so the last question that we like to do is usually tailored to to the interviewee So I wanted to ask, and, and we talked a little bit about this before we started, but I, I changed it a little bit. Um, you share, we, we share a similar background, right? I was an entrepreneur, you were an entrepreneur. Uh, so what, what from your entrepreneurship experience do you think that it's kind of like the skills that transfer and help you really well here as an academic, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking more like now your experience as an entrepreneur, how that really helped you or has helped you maybe. Well, we did talk about over-optimism and how that can be <laughs> perhaps, uh, you know, a, a benefit that you, I mean, because all the journals that we submit to are increasingly hard to get into. And it's hard to publish high-quality research because it's just a lot of people trying to do it. And uh, there are only certain spots left. I mean, there, there are only a certain number of papers that come out in a journal per year. So I've being optimistic has helped me. Uh, continue in the face of really challenging odds of publishing a paper. Um, I also try and make sure I'm doing the most rigorous work that I can in order to be able to uh, at least get some traction at the journal and then learn how to become a better researcher myself because I don't think that ever stops. But as far as what helps me as an entrepreneur, uh, the optimism, being an eternal optimist probably helps, uh, helps, st helps stay resilient. Um, helps me fall back in love with a paper that's been rejected and, mm -hmm. and keep pushing it forward. But I think also the level of persistence that I have to have. Um, there were a lot of challenging things that happened when I was in business, and I thought, well, it's either figure out how to overcome this challenge, or you may not have a business in a few months if you become insolvent. And so I approach a lot of research projects that way. I approach teaching a new prep when I'm teaching a new prep uh, for coursework. Uh, I approach those things as challenges uh, as opposed to hindrances and yes they create stress but when I when I frame that stress as 
a challenge to be overcome. Uh, I think I can do. It, it gives me a lot better frame to approach the problem, and uh, I think it's a it's a lot more likely that I stick in this career that is filled with challenging times, but there are also rewards that you get for it, and so you don't get the rewards if you don't try. And so just continue. I think you said something to me in an email once, Jose, that mm. you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And mm. I'm not sure that 100% of zero is calculable, but I appreciate the sentiment. Like you got <laughs> to you got to put yourself out there. You got to stay active and resilient. And I think my experience being self-employed gave me a lot of the resilience that I have today. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to add a, a bonus question, a little one. Uh, we're in a conference, right? The, the AOM, the largest, biggest conference for for management scholars, any advice for like uh, for a conference, especially for PC students, maybe that you give to your PC students? What's a good advice when you're first timer, right, on a conference like this one or any other? Well, this is kind of a hot take because when I, when I was a graduate student, I wanted to get to conferences as soon as I could, not because I thought I was going to make a big difference or, or do all the networking. I'm I'm also I also tend toward introversion. If you think of extroversion and introversion on a scale, I I'm there are times where I'm extroverted but there are times where I just need to recharge after being around people on my own and so I the hot take part about this is just that I wanted to go to conferences early my department chair thought it doesn't make sense for an early doctoral student to go to a conference because you would not get it, get as much out of it however my retort to that now going through it myself and what I would <laughs> what I say to our faculty now when we're talking about doctoral students going to conferences is that you get those early funky, uncomfortable conferences out of the way, and each one becomes more comfortable. And so, of course, you're not going to make all the contacts that you need to have to develop a robust research pipeline, but you're going to meet people, and those, those people are probably going to be at that conference again, um, depending on their, you know, their trajectory on their research career. And so I want to go to as many conferences as I can. I want to meet as many people as I can because the more conferences that I go to, the more comfortable I am in those social settings and the easier it is to make those connections. And I'm not worried. I'm not stuck in my own head thinking about, oh, gosh, I don't even know if this person wants to talk to me. Of course they want to talk to you. They haven't seen you in a year. And so I think getting those uncomfortable conferences out of the way for early doctoral students is important. And I know that there are people who disagree with me about that, but that's just been my experience. And it's the advice that I give to doctoral students, too. That's awesome. I mean, I'm 100% on board with that advice. I love that. So I think it's a, a great way to finish. Jeff, thanks again uh, for taking the time. Makaila, thanks for joining me. And thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. Thanks, guys.